Amen. Good morning, church. Good to see all of you out for the 11 o'clock service. We had a great group at 9, and now another great group at 11 o'clock. Uh, this morning, we're going to be in Psalm 141. 141. We are continuing. In fact, we're in the midst of a 35-week sermon series on David, the worshiping warrior of God. And we are taking a slice out of David's life from 1st and 2nd Samuel one week. And then the next week, we are looking at a psalm that he wrote that corresponds to that slice of life. Uh, we are seeing how when you get the context of where David was in his life when he wrote some of these psalms, they actually even have more meaning. And I think today, especially following up last week, we're going to see how huge the words and prayer of David are in Psalm 141 this morning. Let's remember again a little bit of last week in the context here. Last week was all about discouragement. And we saw that even a man after God's own heart, like David, could get discouraged and could sort of be in the throes of discouragement. But when you and I stay in a discouraged state too long, like David, it can go from discouragement to disillusionment, even with God, to desperation, and eventually even defection from God. And we saw David go down that entire path last week. He left Israel, and he went into enemy territory and began to become a mercenary soldier for the Philistines and to King Achish of Gath. And so David walked through all of those steps, discouragement, disillusionment, desperation, and eventually defection. And we were reminded, if David, a man after God's own heart, the future king of Israel, if he could walk down that path, then so could you and I. It's a cautionary tale. And we really wanted to concentrate on where it all started, with discouragement. Because you and I, it's not that there aren't going to be times and seasons and circumstances in our life where we're not going to be discouraged. It's what are we going to do in that state of discouragement? How are we going to navigate it? How are we going to respond to it? And we saw last week what David did not do. He was not praying he was not reaching out to a friend like Jonathan or to Ahimelech or to Abishai or to any other godly person in his life. He was trying to figure it out on his own and do it on his own. Well, you come to a whole different place now with David in Psalm 141. And it, it, it's showing us that he's learning from even his mistakes. He's growing. He's, he's making progress in the midst of some of the bad choices and decisions that he makes. And the reason why this psalm, I think, is, is about prayer and how it follows up and even deals with discouragement is when you remember even the words of Jesus. In Luke chapter 18, verse 1, he's got his group of disciples there, and he's getting ready to share a parable with them. And here's what Jesus said. He told them a parable to show them that they must always pray and not lose heart, not give up, not become discouraged. 
not grow faint, not throw in the towel. So Jesus' remedy for discouragement was prayer. And prayer is one of those disciplines in the Christian life that so many of us struggle with. And so I want to encourage us to prayer today. I want us, as we start out a new year, to make a commitment to prayer like we never have before. Because prayer is one of those great privileges we have as believers in Jesus Christ to come before the throne of God. And what does the author of Hebrews say? Let us come boldly under the throne of grace that we might find grace to help in our time of need. And let me say this before we actually get into the psalm this morning as well. Prayer isn't always about changing our circumstances. Prayer is certainly about bringing our cares and casting our cares upon him because he cares for us, 1 Peter 5, 7. But prayer isn't always about changing our circumstances. Prayer can sometimes and most often be about changing us. I mean, think about Paul. Paul had the thorn in his flesh. Paul goes to God three times and asks God to remove the thorn in his flesh. And God says, no, I'm not going to change your circumstances, but I'm going to change you, Paul. I'm going to remind you that my grace in you through the Holy Spirit is sufficient for you to navigate this. And you and I, if we've walked with the Lord any length of time, we know that to be true, that sometimes as I'm praying about someone or something, God's as much changing my heart and my perspective and my outlook as he is the circumstance itself. And you even see that with David here. Because at the beginning of even this psalm and this prayer of David that becomes a psalm, a song in Israel, he's not so sure yet. There's still this feeling of vulnerability and insecurity that is coming out of David as he begins to pray to God. But by the end, I think you begin to see the assurance return, the confidence return, that that settledness in God return through the communion that he's had with God. So today in Psalm 141, I, I want you to see four things that in a sense David is crying out for in this psalm. You're going to see David begin by saying, God, help me. Then he's going to say, God, keep me. Then he's going to say, God, use me. And finally, God, protect me. So let's walk through this psalm this morning. And hopefully as we walk through God's word, we'll be encouraged by the example of David here and be encouraged to be more and more men and women of prayer. Notice the particulars of prayer here, first of all, with God help me. O Lord, Jehovah, capital L-O-R-D, the covenant name for God in the Old Testament, the one that reminds us that the people of God and, and their God, we are in a personal relationship here. This isn't some distant God, some God who's up there who's uncaring, who just sort of wound the universe up, as Adia said, and just let it go. No, he's intimately involved in his universe that he created and in every life. So David says, oh, Lord, I cry out to you. Come quickly to me. Literally, run to me. God, run to me. I need you right now. It's the acknowledgement of the need of God. And you think about how that contrasts to last week. He was making decisions and choices, and he wasn't even talking to God about it. 
He wasn't inquiring of God. He wasn't praying, asking for God's guidance and direction. Now he's gotten himself in this terrible mess, in this jam, and now all of a sudden he's crying out to God and saying, God, run to me. And here's what I want to encourage us with too. God is always there for us. And we can always come to him. And we can especially come to him when we've made a mess of things. Because God's always there for us, no matter what. And, and that's what David realized about his God is, God, I've messed up, but I know that you're there for me no matter what. And I hope that all of you remember that as well. It doesn't matter how long you've been away from God or what you've done. God is always accessible to you. And you can cry out to him just as David has done. He says, come quickly to me. Pay attention. Listen to me with favor, God, when I cry out to you. You know, again, I, I'm hoping that, that the words of this psalm this prayer of David will be a motivation for us to just continually turn to the Lord in our life. To turn to him not just for the big things, but for the little things, for the everythings. That God cares about us and, and everything that is going on in our life. And he doesn't force his way into our life or force his help upon us, but he's certainly ready, willing, and able to help us when we call out to him. And David knew that. He knew that, and that's why he was doing it. Notice what David says then in verse 2. May you accept my prayer like incense. Because throughout the Bible, the picture of prayer is like incense going up to the Lord. From Genesis to Revelation, you can find that illustration of prayer, of, of the prayers of the saints going up as incense to God, filling, in a sense, his nostrils with a, a sweet-smelling savor. God loves it when his people turn to him and come to him in prayer. He invites us to come to him. And so David gets that imagery, if you will, of, of the worship of incense. And then he says, my uplifted hands like the evening offering. There was the morning offering, there was the evening offering. And David is in a sense saying, from beginning of my day to the end of my day, I'm coming to you, God, and my prayer is also an act of worship. It is an act of adoration because I realize that as I come to you with uplifted hands, I am coming into the presence of the greatest one in the universe. There is no one greater than you. There's no one higher than you. There's no one who can help me like you. There's no one who can strengthen me like you. God, you're it. And so I recognize that as I come into your presence, I'm coming to the greatest person in the universe and the one who loves me more than anyone else does. But also with his uplifted hands, I think he's also symbolizing this. That as I come to you, God, I'm humbling myself. And, and I'm coming to receive from you. These uplifted hands are hands that are here uh, telling you that I'm depending on you. I'm relying on you. I'm ready to receive from you. Because we knew that earlier on in David's walk, he was more in a prideful place. He, he was not willing in his heart to receive the things that God had for him, the things that he needed to hear. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But now he's in a different place. Now God has softened his heart, and his heart is more tender, 
And now he's willing to come to God and he's saying, God, whatever you have for me, I'm ready for it. I'm willing to receive it. I hope we're all there this morning. You know, so often, even as God's people, we can come to the house of God week in and week out and we can leave totally unchanged instead of being transformed, instead of being changed. We can sit down and read the Bible and it can fill our head with a bunch of facts and and we can become more intellectually and analytically understanding what the Bible says and yet it never changes our heart. So we all have to be careful that we're not just filling our minds with facts about the Bible because the Bible was not given us for information. It was given us for transformation. God wants to change lives through his word. But God has to have our heart in the right place. That's why Jesus shared the parable of the soils. The seed was all the same. It's the word of God. Nothing wrong with the seed. It's per each of us our heart and the condition of our heart as to is that seed going to penetrate? Is it going to bring forth fruit? And the sad thing is in the parable of the soils, only one of the four soils ever brought forth fruit that remained. So you and I have to check our heart. We have to make sure that as we come to God like David, that we are in a position to receive from him and to embrace whatever he has for us. So help me, God. I hope all of us are encouraged to go to the Lord for help. Psalm 25, verse 15, I will continually look to the Lord for help, David says. Throughout our study of David, we've seen many of the Psalms where David wrote, you're my strength, you're my helper, you're my refuge. David was continually looking to the Lord for his sufficiency, for his supply, for all that he needed. And God wants us to do the same, to follow in the footsteps of David here. But then beginning in verse 3, David, in a sense, moves from help me to keep me. He is asking the Lord here, I believe, for wisdom. We know the Bible encourages us to do that. James 1.5, if any of us lack wisdom, and we all do, let's ask of God, and he will give it to us. What is wisdom? Wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective and to respond as God would. Let me repeat that. Wisdom is the ability to see things from God's perspective and to respond the way that he would. We all need wisdom. And I think David is saying, God, I need your wisdom. And notice here, unlike in some of the Psalms we've looked at in the past, where David was concentrating on his enemies and other people, here he realizes, God, I need you. And I need your wisdom, especially in four areas that David sort of reveals here that he needs God's wisdom for. First, my words. Notice what he says in verse 3. Oh, Lord, keep me here. Place a guard on my mouth. Protect the opening of my lips. David realizes a lot of the situations he's found himself in, not so much with Saul chasing him, but other things like the things that he has said to the king of Gath, Achish, He's gotten himself into trouble because of what he said. We saw the deception come out of David's lips last week whenever the king of Gath said, where you been going, David? Where you been raiding? And David's like, 
oh, I've been going down to the Negev, when we know that's not where David was going. And so David realizes, you know what, God? I, I need your wisdom for this right here, because this thing gets me into trouble an awful lot. Isn't that why James says, be slow to speak, slow to anger, and quick to listen? To, in a sense, be, be more prone to listen and to speak, and yet we know in our world today that's pretty much the opposite. People speak first, and we're not very good listeners. I think biblically, as Christ followers, we need to be better listeners and do less talking. And so David says to God, keep my mouth, God. I need your wisdom when it comes to what comes out of my mouth. Second, I need your wisdom for my heart. Because notice what he says in verse 4. Do not let me have evil desires. And where do those desires come from? Our heart. That's where all of our desires, our passions, our choices come. That's why the Bible talks to us about our heart and the significance of it and why we are told to guard our heart and to to make sure of what goes in. Because even Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that defiles him, it's what comes out of him. And where does that come out of? Our heart. So David here is saying, God, I need your wisdom for my words. I need your wisdom to, to make sure that my heart's in alignment with you. Third, I need wisdom for my actions. Because he says, do not let me have evil desires or participate in sinful activities. Because my heart will lead to actions. And I need to make sure that the actions that I'm doing are glorifying to you, that they are reflective of you, that they represent you in a good way. Again, that they are what you would be doing if you were in my place. And we know, obviously, David has made many choices and decisions that were good decisions, not to take the life of Saul, all of those things, but David has made some bad decisions. And David is saying, I need your wisdom not only for my words and my heart, but my actions. And then finally, I need wisdom when it comes to my companions. Now we know David had a great friend in Jonathan. We've talked about the friendship of David and Jonathan. And we'll talk more about that in just a moment. He had Abishai and Ahimelech. But David is saying, you know, just like the word says, you know, he who walks with the wise will be wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. That who our traveling companions are in our life really do shape our life and make a big difference. They influence us. The people that we allow into our lives to speak into our lives, they influence us and impact us. So we've got to be strategic and cautious and careful about the people that we walk through life with. And so notice what David says. I need wisdom in that area. Because he says, I don't want to participate in sinful activities with men who behave wickedly. I will not eat their delicacies. And I love that word delicacy because it sort of reminds us of what David is saying. That man, the things that other people can offer us, the things that the world, the flesh, and the devil can offer us, man, they can look good externally. But they're very surfacey. They're very superficial. When you begin to scratch below the surface, there's nothing of fulfillment and eternal satisfaction. There's nothing of eternal worth or value below the surface. And I think that's why it's even important to remember that 
you know, the Greek word for world is cosmos. It's where we get our word cosmetic from. It's the idea that in many ways, the world as we see it through human eyes, there's this sort of cosmetic nature to it. You know, it, it might look good for a time. But if you and I just had a little bit of a deeper insight and perception, we would realize that's not good at all. That's not going to lead me anywhere. That's not of any eternal value or worth. And I want to live for what really matters. And so David here, I think, is saying, God, help me and God, keep me. Keep my words, keep my heart, keep my actions, keep my companions. Give me wisdom, God, when it comes to choosing what I say, what I'm feeling and desiring in my heart, where I want to go and what I want to be involved with, and who I want around me as my traveling companions. Now, David sort of then goes even deeper with that. Because as I said, David's in a different place than he's been before. He is willing to hear from God what he needs to hear, not necessarily what he wants to hear. Oh, you know, none of us like that necessarily. It's uncomfortable. But all of us need to get to a place where we're humble enough before our God to be where David is right now. And many times, God will choose to send someone very strategically and surgically into our life to be that person to share with us what we need to hear, not what we want to hear. So notice David's next words in verse 5. May the godly strike me in love and correct me or redirect me. May my head not refuse choice oil or the correction that brings alignment and healing to my life. Let me share another verse with you that supports this view. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. I think about Judas, you know, kissing the Lord as he betrayed him. He had no love for Jesus, but he kissed him on the outside. Oh, kiss, sign of love and affection. No, below the surface, there was nothing there. And yet there might be a few people throughout our life that are such friends of ours that when they say something to us, it might not be what we want to hear, but we need to hear. And all of us need that one or maybe two people in our life that can fill that role. Because let's talk about this from both sides. First of all, again, we need to be in the place like David where we're finally willing to hear it. Because let's face it, there's times in our life where we're hard-headed, we're stubborn, uh, we, we're going to do what we want to do, and we're going to go down our road that we're going down, and we don't care who says what to us, this is what we're doing, and we're not open to any kind of constructive criticism or counsel or anything, you know? Yet the Bible says in the multitude of counselors, there's safety, right? David hadn't been willing to listen to anybody. Now he is. And especially the voice of God that might be coming through another human being. 
But let me say this about who that is. Because you and I understand this. In our day and age, everybody is way more willing to come into all of our lives and judge us and be critical of us. And, and when they get with us, they're always trying to fix us. You and I have relationships like that, right? That's not the kind of person that's going to be effective in this role. The kind of person that you and I at times in our life will be willing to hear what we need to hear from but not what we want to hear is going to be the person that most of the time is not that way with us. They're not always going to be trying to fix us, tell us what we you know, aren't doing right and all of that and criticizing and being critical and judging us. They're going to be, first of all, a safe person. Well, that narrows the list way down, right? Because we all know when we really start thinking about it, how many of our friends are really safe people, okay? So that narrows the list down. Then who in my life do I really believe has my best interest at heart, who loves me, and I know they love me. And so if they're going to say something like this to me, they're going to pick their spots. And, and, and they're going to be very strategic and surgical. And, and they're not going to be doing this all the time. And it's even going to be the way they do it, because you and I understand this kind of communication too. It's not always what someone says, it's when they say it and how they say it. And that's what David is looking for. I think Jonathan would have been that for David, you see. Maybe Abishai or Ahimelech, but beyond that, I don't think David had too many people in his life that would have filled that role. And you and I don't either. And God understands that. But God also knows us and knows them to know that if there is a time where you and I are open to hear God and what we need to hear rather than what we want to hear, God knows who to tap and send into our life to do it. And that's what David is asking for here. He's asking for that right person to come into his life and tell him at this point, strike me. You know, I need redirection here. I need, I need alignment. I need to hear what you have for me. Now, in verse 6 and 7, David then sort of transitions to use me. And the Hebrew here is very difficult to translate. But I'm going to approach it from this standpoint. David had his enemies, obviously, many of them, even beyond Saul. And David here, though, because his heart's in such a different place, he isn't praying for the demise of his enemies. I think he's praying for the Lord to use him in their life as he's asking the Lord to use someone else in his life. I mean, think about it. Could he even have in mind Saul, his father-in-law? Like, God, would you humble him to the point where he would listen to me? Because we know in our series on David, there have been many interactions that David has had with Saul. And even Saul's cried tears and Saul said things like, oh, David, I'll never chase you down again and try to kill you. And yet Saul keeps going back and doing the same thing. 
But notice what David says in verse 6. They will be thrown down the side of a cliff by their judges. Who's he speaking about? I think his enemies, because notice he even says at the end of verse 5, my prayer is a witness against their evil deeds. Now, this might seem pretty harsh. Wow. Thrown down off the side of a cliff by judges? But notice here, this is descriptive language. This, this is language about their comeuppance, as we would say, about humbling them to a point where they would be willing to listen. Because notice then what David says next in the context. Right after verse 6, or in the middle of verse 6, he says, they will listen to my words for they are pleasant. By the way, the word pleasant there is a key word. Not harsh, not hard, not harmful, rude, bitter. No, pleasant. The Hebrew word means beautiful, lovely, agreeable, pleasurable. Again, speaking about the way someone says something to someone. And David is saying, my heart's in a different place that if I get the opportunity even to speak to these people who've been after me, God, let it be pleasant words, your beautiful words that come out of my mouth so that they might listen. Listen and turn before it's too late for them. Because then in verse 7, he speaks about the coming of the grave and how our life is a vapor and how the grave or Sheol is opening up and ready for all of us. And we know that to be the case. Listen, our earthly life is so short and brief compared to eternity. And David is saying, my desire, God, is that you would use me in other people's lives in a positive way before it's too late for them before Sheol opens up for them and they go into eternity and they have no other opportunity to ever change or be transformed again. So in this prayer, David has been saying, God, help me, keep me, use me, and then in verses 8 through 10, protect me. And how is David seeking protection? Verse 8, by looking continually to the Lord. Notice he says, surely, I am looking to you, O sovereign Lord. The psalmist's eyes of faith are toward the Lord. And again, we know that throughout Scripture, this is a common exhortation. The writer of Hebrews, in Hebrews 12, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. A great illustration of fixing our eyes on Jesus and how good comes from that is the very familiar story of Peter walking on water. Peter gets out of a boat, a human being just like you and I, and walks on top of the water as long as his eyes were on Jesus. But as soon as he took his eyes off of Jesus and got them on the winds and the waves, he began to sink. And Jesus had to reach down and pull him back out. You and I need to remember that. The Bible is telling us, fix your gaze on Jesus. Keep your eyes focused on him and don't take your eyes off of him. And it's so easy in this world to get our eyes off of our God, to get our eyes off on our circumstances, on the crises going on in the world, on all the craziness in the world and the chaos in the world, and to begin to allow 
All these things to fill us with fear and hopelessness and desperation and discouragement. No, the Bible's remedy, keep your eyes focused on God. And here's one of the reasons why. Because when you and I are looking into the face of God through the eyes of faith, we are seeing a face that loves us. We are seeing eyes that adore us. Zephaniah 3.17, he renews us by his love every day. We are looking into the eyes of one who loves us more than we could ever imagine and one who will love us more than we ever will be loved by anything or anyone else. But we're also looking at the face of glory, the face of the sovereign master of the universe, the Lord of hosts, one who's greater and stronger. So the one that he is praying to, the one who he is asking to help him and keep him and use him, there's no better one to go to. No higher one to appeal to. And David is saying, that's the one I need to keep my eyes on. Because I know that if I keep my eyes on you, God, I will feel more secure. I will feel more settled. I will feel more stable. Because I won't be putting my eyes on the winds and the waves and the circumstances and all that's going on. I'll be keeping my eyes on my God at all times. In you, I take shelter. I seek refuge. You are my rock, God. And literally, in the Hebrew language, David is saying, I'm looking to him and I'm running to him. Isn't that interesting? At the beginning of the psalm, David is asking God to run to him. Now David is saying, now I'm running to you. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are set safely on high, Proverbs 18.10. Interesting how that's changed in David. And then verse 9, or excuse me, the end of verse 8, do not expose me to danger because I know it's all around God, but I know that you alone can protect me like no one or nothing else can. In you is my security, my feeling of safety, my stability, my settledness. Folks, that's why even in these last couple years, even since the pandemic, that's why so many Christians are even struggling. Because their hope for their safety and security are in worldly things, not the Lord. Folks, as the Bible says, unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen watch in vain. Our ultimate security and safety and stability and subtleness can only be found in God. Not in anything on earth or anything earthly. Or even let me say it in this day and age and in this season we're getting ready or we're already in and getting ready. Even in who's in the White House. It doesn't matter if God's on the throne. That's what matters most. So David says in verse 9, protect me from the snare they've laid for me. Wrap a hedge around me, God. Surround me. Guard me, because you can do it like no one or nothing else can. And we know this to be the case. How often up to this point in David's life has God protected him? Saul was chucking spears at him many times, and yet the spear was redirected by God and missed him. Listen, as I told you before, Saul was an expert at throwing spears. He was not just the king of Israel. He was a warrior. 
The only explanation for Saul missing David at such close range was God protecting David. Because it wasn't David's time yet. Because God had plans for David to be the future king of Israel. You and I are invincible until God says, I'm done. So David says, protect me. Protect me because there's snares laid out for me. There's traps that they've laid out for me. Oh, but verse 10, I love this. Let the wicked fall into their own nets. That boomerang justice we've talked about. Like Haman and Mordecai in the book of Esther. What was intended for one came back and actually fell on the other. But notice the last three words. Here's where you begin to see that confidence come back in David. While I escape. The snares are still going to be there. The traps are still going to be there. David, in a sense, is looking at life like we should. It's a battlefield. It's a minefield. And yet God alone can help us walk through the battlefield and minefield of life confidently. Because there's always going to be stuff out there that can get us. But God's our protection. God's the one we must ultimately look to. And you can see David feeling that again. You see, his fear drove him to the Philistines to, to look for safety and security from Saul there rather than to his God. And now he's learning, oh, no, there's no safety over here. There's no security or surety over here. I've got to go back to God. That's where my safety and security and surety is at. Folks, I want to put this passage into practice today. You know, Jesus said, my house shall be known as a house of prayer. And I truly believe that God wants to encourage us, as I said, this coming year, to be on our knees more than we've ever been before, to, to be more committed to prayer. And I know that many of you, and I don't even know the half of it, of what some of you are going through in your life right now. But as your pastor, I know that many of you, you're going through a season right now. I want to encourage you, don't be the David of before. The David that was trying to do it all on his own. The David that wasn't turning to God in prayer. The David that wasn't reaching out to another Christian friend and asking them to pray with him and pray for him. No, let's be the David of now. The David who is turning to God saying, help me, keep me, use me, protect me. And the David who is going to reach out to others to pray with him and to pray for him. There's nothing that can strengthen us and encourage us like knowing that there are fellow believers who are praying with us and praying for us. And so what I want to do today as we end our service in worship today is make it a service of both praise and prayer because that's exactly what David did here. With his uplifted hands, with the incense going up at the evening offering, it was a time not only where David was praying but where he was praising the Lord. And so I want our time as we close the service today to be a time of praise but also a time of prayer. So I'm going to ask Mandy and our worship team to come and get settled here on the platform. And as they come, I've asked just a couple of other people to join me up front today. If you would like someone to pray with you or pray for you, I want to encourage you today that as we begin to worship the Lord, to just come and let one of us have the privilege of praying with you and praying for you this morning. So would you stand with me? I'm going to step right down here in the middle. I've got Jeff over here, one of our elders at this uh, 
place. I've got Bonnie over here, Brooks uh, over here to pray. And so as we go through this song today, if you would like prayer, for say, you come and let us pray with you or pray for you. And if not, just be praising and praying right there. Maybe you have somebody in your life right now that you know you need to intercede for. You know they desperately need the Lord and they need prayer in their life. Then please, by all means, you pray for them right now during our time as well. And I'll let our worship team come now and begin our time.